I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. For a time, New York City was the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States. Today, Governor Andrew Cuomo said the city is on track now to enter its second phase of reopening as soon as Monday. We once again have demonstrated that we've gone from the worst infection rate in the country to the best infection rate in the country. Other parts of the country are experiencing an increase in coronavirus cases. That includes Arizona, Florida, and Oklahoma, which has hit another new high in COVID-19 infections. The mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum, has remained resolute, though, despite the concerns of public health officials in allowing large-scale gatherings this weekend in Tulsa, including President Trump's campaign event on Saturday and accompanying demonstrations. We are going to, to welcome uh, the president uh, to Tulsa this weekend, uh, and I'm grateful that he wants to highlight our city and the hard work and the sacrifice that Tulsans have made to protect one another uh, over the last several months. The mayor added this. If you're going to go this weekend, whether you're going to uh, the president's event or you're going to a counter-protest or you're going to some other event this weekend, would strongly ask you to follow Dr. Dart's advice about wearing a mask, maintaining social distancing, washing your hands. If you don't feel well, don't go. You heard him reference Dr. Bruce Dart. He's the Tulsa Health Department director who had recommended the president's rally be postponed. He said today it's possible the number of cases could further rise as a result of this weekend's events. This is the reality around us is that we have a a virus that that we have no or little to no immunity in the community. We have no vaccine. We have no clinical therapies. So you've got to take the the only tools we have are the precautions, the recommendations we make around masking and distancing and and, uh, hygiene. And do people probably get tired of hearing that? I'm sure they do, you know, but... We, we can't stop messaging. This is the day you can go bowling again in Connecticut. The state moved into its next phase of reopening, which allows gyms, hotels, and bowling alleys to reopen. Bethany Hearn is the owner of Groton Bowling Center in the southeastern part of the state. How's it going? Well, it's, it's good. It's crazy. We didn't know what to expect, and we are, we're really busy now already. So it's good. It's good to see the regulars back. We're speaking just after 9 a.m. Eastern time, and you're already filled up. People were waiting in the parking lot. They started coming in about 8.30, sitting outside waiting for us to open at 9. So That has to make you feel good that people really wanted to come back in. Yeah, they were really chomping at the bit to get back. They really missed the, the sport of bowling. We abruptly closed March 13th, so none of the leagues could finish out their season. And most of the people that have come in so far have been on one of those leagues, so they're just looking to start back up again. What have you had to do in order to comply with all the requirements to open back up? Well, we're only allowed 50% capacity, so we have to skip every other lane. Uh, We do require everyone wears a mask when they're in the building. Uh, We have put up plexiglass partitions. We put markers on the floor for six feet apart, obviously putting extra cleaning precautions in place. Um, It's definitely going to be a learning curve involved. And now that we're seeing, you know, people are looking to get back here. We didn't know. I mean, we we could open the door at 9 o'clock and nobody would have been here. So it's good, but I'm sure we'll be changing things as we go, as we figure out, you know, what's going to work and what's not working. What does it say to you that you had people, you know, lined up a half an hour before you opened? 
Well, so it's it's humbling because my husband and I only bought this center in August of 2019, and we've done a lot of work, and we're we're very hands on. We've been here before COVID happened. We were here every single day, um, so people got to know us, and they could come to us if there was any issues happening, and you know they got the response that they were looking for. It's definitely good to see the people come back because it feels like they're in a way supporting us personally. Even though I, I think it's more just because they love the sport of bowling. In a, in a bowling alley, you are spaced fairly well apart. So two lanes share a ball return. So that's why we have to skip every other lane so that each lane has their own ball return. Um, just to prevent people cross-contamination from touching something that somebody else on a different lane is going to then touch. So it's definitely, you know, we have to wipe down all the house balls. We have to, we already obviously sanitize the shoes, but there's definitely more practices involved with that. So it's definitely more time consuming and everything needs to be wiped down after every single patron. Once they leave the lane, that table and the chairs and everything needs to be wiped down. A whole new way of doing business, huh? A whole new way of doing business. And we were probably going to be doing this for the foreseeable future. Until until we know for sure that the numbers are down and we're given more clearance from the government, then we'll continue doing what we got to do. They're bowling again at Groton Bowling Center in Connecticut, and our thanks to owner Bethany Hearn. So many of us are still largely at home, and for parents that poses lingering challenges, including keeping our kids occupied and keeping them moving. Ziggy Cormandel is an innovator in augmented reality technology and created an app called ColorQuest AR that has just taken off. It teaches kids about healthy eating and good nutrition while they color characters they can then bring to life on screen. Ziggy's with us now. Tell us more. ColorQuest is incredible. Look, it's a coloring app that um, has does something very unique. First of all, the reason we created it is to educate and engage children about their health their bodies and fruits, vegetables, and healthy eating because it's not taught at school anymore. So with this app, we have over 80 characters and the characters are made out of real Pixar style cartoons of like fruits, vegetables, and other foods, um, cakes, cookies. We don't shame kids. You're going to have cake during birthday. So we call them sometime foods or once in a while foods. Um, And then organs, cartoon hearts, lungs, and the child gets a 2D drawing and they get different um, colors and brushes that they could tap on their iPhone or their, or their Android or any tablet, and they color it in the way they want it. If they're super young, they can color out the lines. If they want to get detailed, they can do that. But the magic happens when they click the magic wand button. It launches the camera on the device, and they can place that character now in their environment in, using augmented reality. We have patent-pending technology. But it shows up the way they colored they color the character in. So they created that thing. And the magic about it is before they can interact with that character, the screen is blocked and a fact or health tip about that fruit, vegetable, organ is read aloud to them. So they're forced to listen to this thing before they can engage. What made you think about dancing hearts and lungs and vegetables? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, uh, I joined this company called Stay Healthy. I had an augmented reality company before with some patented technology. And when I met the CEO of Stay Healthy, John Collins, he said, look, and they acquired my company. They said, now we have this killer technology. What can we do to engage children? about their health. There is a real problem here. There's, um, you know, our data is showing there's going to be 250 million children obese by 2030. It's insane. Um, so we said, okay, what are we going to do here? Well, what aren't they learning anymore? It's healthy food, you know, learning about nutrition, their bodies. So we said, look, we did some research in the app stores and we found 
two activities actually that's wildly popular amongst children and adults. I'm talking hundreds of millions of downloads. And that was coloring and puzzles. Um, you know, you have child, if you've, ever, if you've ever gone to a restaurant, what's the first thing they do, right? Would you like something to color? It's a proven stress release uh, reliever. And we knew that, you know, there's hundreds of millions of parents out there that's already downloaded coloring apps. So why color butterflies, you know, Ferraris and motorcycles and, you know, whatever, when you can learn? Did you mean for it to be launched at this time of pandemic? Because it seems uniquely situated, not only with online learning, but also the need for distractions. I'm glad you brought that up. But we did it. We actually launched it last August. The incredible thing is it just took off. You know, we barely did any marketing. We have over 2.2 million downloads now. Um, It's in 150 countries. It's number one in 24 countries in education for small children. And then I'm glad you said it. Now is a crazy time. Look, I started late. I'm I'm 48 years old. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old daughter. And we're stuck at home now, right? 24-7. I love my kids, but oh my God, right? And I got to tell you, to be able to hand them an iPad, guilt-free, you know, because, you know, they're playing all these games and we try to limit screen time, but now it's really impossible and guilt-free to know they're learning and getting a kick out of it. And I'll tell you what else is interesting. Our app, you know, the data that we have, our app is being played two to three times more than the average app for that age. So you're really going to get a nice 10 to 20 million, 20 minute break when you hand that iPad to them. And we're thinking about, you know, venturing into um, stress relief for adults later. Ziggy Cormandel's behind the popular app ColorQuest AR that is keeping so many kids busy while they stay at home. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we're seeing COVID cases climb around the globe, even here in the United States in 20 different states. There is news of a therapy with some potential positive effects. It's news we could all probably use right now. Yeah. Fill us in. 100%. And potentially positive is the key word. So let's do a deep dive on this steroid uh, called dexamethasone. The preliminary results were released yesterday, but this is an old, cheap, and very safe medication. It's available in pill or IV form. It's on the shelf of every hospital in the country. This data that was just released has not yet been peer-reviewed. The authors have not yet released the full amount of data, but it is the first study that showed a reduced risk of death when using dexamethasone in patients with COVID-19. They found that it was about 30% lower in patients who were on mechanical ventilation and about 20% lower in patients who are receiving supplemental oxygen. So this is in moderately or severely ill patients with COVID-19. What's the theory on how it works? Well, at this time, we have to remember that steroids, which have been around for a long time, their main theory is that they work via anti-inflammatory effects, which we know is a major part of COVID disease, particularly in the critically ill. Um, They do target the hyperactive immune response that we're seeing in some patients that is causing them uh, to require ICU care. And we have to remember that there is a difference between low-dose and high-dose steroids. In this trial, they use pretty low doses of dexamethasone. You mentioned the study needs to be peer-reviewed. There's a lot more research that needs to go into it. So what are the unknowns at this point? Well, at this point, what we don't know yet in terms of dexamethasone is we still need to see that published data and it needs to go through the peer review process. That is critically important. We don't yet know if it could have a role in prevention of patients who have mild disease and kind of block that course from mild to severe. And we don't know the dosing regimens, how much to give. And it also hasn't been tested in a pediatric population. So research definitely ongoing. All right. 
right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Well, now to our wide-ranging exclusive conversation with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He is widely credited with helping to bring back the American epicenter of the coronavirus from a very dangerous precipice now onto a steadier course with the number of deaths and hospitalizations sharply dropping. But it has been a complex journey that's not over. So, Governor, we just heard you point out that New York, your state, has done pretty much a, a complete flip. We used to be in the worst possible position, and now where are we today? Well, we were in the, in the worst position. You know, what happened in New York was uh, no one really knew what they were talking about when this COVID crisis started. So uh, we took dramatic action, and we took it seriously, and we enforced it. And God bless New Yorkers. They all rallied. They got it. Uh, I gave them the facts literally on a daily basis. We would go through the facts. And we now have the lowest transmission rate of any state in the United States. So you credit the people of New York and not necessarily your leadership or a combination of the two? No, they did it. You know, I gave them the facts. You know, government couldn't enforce any of these things. Stay at home, close your business, social distance, don't hug, right? Uh, it was it was social action. It wasn't really government action. I just stood up and said to 19 million New Yorkers, this is what you have to do. They're just not going to take that uh, edict from on high. So my strategy was just give them the facts. Give them the facts. And people were hungry for facts. I mentioned praise and criticism. As of June 15th, and I know you know this number, New York has lost 21,578 people to COVID-19. And some critics have suggested that you ignored early warnings about the severity of this disease and that if you would shut down a week earlier or two, that lives could have been saved. Obviously, now we have information we didn't have then. But do you regret now, with the information you have now, not shutting down New York earlier? Well, we didn't have the information then. If we knew then what we know now, forget a week or two, uh, that's nonsense. First case New Yorkers heard about, and 19 days later, everything was closed down. We knew last December that China had this virus. Didn't someone expect that the virus was going to get on a plane and travel? And it did. Everybody was still saying, it's in China, it's in China. It wasn't in China. It was in Europe. The president didn't, didn't enact the European travel ban till mid-March. That was the problem. They're talking about a second wave or there'll be another virus. Are we going to be better prepared? Will we understand now that an outbreak anywhere is an outbreak everywhere? That's how we have to think about it. When you hear there's an outbreak in China, then assume it got on a plane yesterday and arrived at JFK in New York this morning. Where do you think we go from here? I mean, in your heart, what do you think? I know no one knows for sure. Does it get better? Does it get worse before it gets better? We will get past this one. We will pay a heavy price, but we will get past it. But we have to be ready for the next one. We were on the Are we break. ready for the next one? Oh, I don't believe we've, I don't believe we've even asked ourselves the tough questions, let alone answer them. I still want to know why we had people, we knew there was a virus December, January in China, and we still had our doors open at our airports 
here in New York and across the country in March. When are you going to hug your mom again? I haven't hugged my mom since this started. I miss that. I don't think she misses it, but I miss it. <laughs> the news is full of COVID-19 heroes lately, but this particular story caught our eye. A pro golfer who traded her clubs for scrubs to join the front lines in the fight against the pandemic. Sarah Hoffman joins us now. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. And you were a practicing nurse before you turned pro. Well, now you're back to work as a nurse in Michigan. What went into that decision to put your scrubs back on again? Well, every off season, I returned to nursing. So the pandemic kind of uh, made that decision for me as far as going back to nursing. We had our first tournament in the first week of March, and then we had a suspension and kind of made a second off season for us. So when I would think about going back to, you know, fight this virus, the tour was trying to protect us from, of course, it was scary, but I knew that people from the community were doing everything that they could, whether that be working from home or donating and making personal protective equipment. So I didn't want to look back one day and regret not doing that every doing everything that I could to help if I didn't return to nursing. And we are so grateful for everything that you and all of your colleagues have done and continue to do. As you know, Michigan, one of the hardest hit states in this country. Talk a little bit about what your experience has been like there on the front lines. Yeah, so I returned at the end of April and it was a little bit obviously a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. I work on an orthopedic medical surgical unit. So along with going through a checkpoint and getting your mask that you're going to be wearing for the next 12 and a half hours of your shift, um, I was met with a patient population that's not necessarily uh, what I was used to. So orthopedic surgeries are considered elective, or most of them at least. So those were all canceled to save resources for COVID uh, positive patients. And so I was met with very sick patients going through emergent surgeries that no longer had the physical support of their loved ones um, as visitors were banned from the hospital. So yeah, it was how, very tough. How did you get through it? How did you deal with that emotionally? Um, I, think, I think it's tough in nursing. We're kind of used to that. Um, kind of give this example. Uh, one day I had a patient who really wanted to see his wife. So we found a plan to call her and I gave her directions to a parking lot and she was able to wave to us. We were on the fifth floor, so she couldn't see us, but we could see her and it just made the patient so happy. And it was like the sweetest and saddest thing. Um, so that's kind of being there for your patient in that way. But then um, what some of the happiest moments were being able to line the hallways with nurses and other staff and being able to uh, clap for patients as they were being discharged. After several weeks of fighting for their lives in the ICU and then they would come to our unit and continue to recover and then, you know, being well enough to go home. That Those were the moments that I'll never forget. It still gives me goosebumps, and it's just such a happy time to be able to celebrate that. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we're going to be rooting you on come July 24th. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Up next, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton with answers to a number of your new coronavirus questions and then carefully reconnecting the do's and don'ts for expanding your pandemic circle. Becky Worley on those pods and bubbles everyone's talking about. Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here with us. And Dr. Jen, I love this. You said, let's have Women's Health Wednesdays, right? I'm all about it. (laughs) And so today you wanted to talk about some new guidelines out there that says that say 
all women should be screened for anxiety. Exactly. And these were just published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Who isn't feeling some degree of anxiety today? I mean, it's literally not only a normal response and feeling, but it's almost a universal one. Um, but this is actually the most common mental health disorder in U.S. Uh, adults. And so now these recommendations, which come from an arm that's administered by ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, suggest starting to screen all women starting at the age of 13 mm. by their primary care physician or their health care provider for anxiety because it can literally affect all aspects of their lives and typically it's underdiagnosed. Underdiagnosed and, and there are treatments available so you don't have to suffer. That there is a range of treatment options, more treatment options than ever and obviously that's to be individualized. It's not one size fits all. It may be one treatment at one point in someone's life and then another treatment at another point and they range from meditation, mindfulness, exercise, um, acupuncture, meditation to medication um, but the key is recognizing it mm -hmm. so that you can manage anxiety, it doesn't manage you. Right, and there's a distinction between having situational anxiety and then having anxiety in general. That's correct, and obviously anxiety and depression can go hand in hand. There can be situational anxiety that can manifest as very real physical symptoms, but I was so glad to see these recommendations because increasing awareness is the first step. Has there been any indication yet of antibodies protecting people from reinfection? Oh, people aren't going to like this one, but remember, it's only about six months old this virus, so we don't have any what we call seminal data on this yet, but there is preliminary data that's back largely from the vaccine trials, actually, that show that, yes, people who have been exposed do have some immune protection. But again, how much protection and how long that lasts, still unknown. All right. Next question. Do we know if the increase of positive cases in certain states are due to higher volume of testing or lacks precautions? Hmm. According to top epidemiologists, public health officials, infectious disease specialists, obviously the increase in testing can be a component of it. But the general consensus is that it's really behavioral. We have to remember this virus did not disappear when we were inside for two months. So as people come out, it's human nature to want to just get back to the way things were maybe last summer or six months ago. And a lot of that laxity in our behavioral not taking those social distancing precautions is thought to be a play. And we also have to remember there is a lag time anywhere from one to three weeks from when people can be exposed to when we can start to see those cases. All right. Next question. As cases rise in many states, at what point will this outbreak be considered a second wave? When it's in the rearview mirror, that's the tricky thing. And we mm. say this every year with our flu season. Have we hit the peak yet? We don't know if we're at the peak until it's behind us. This virus, this pandemic is no different. However, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, he says it's not inevitable that we will see a second wave in the fall. So, again, how high those cases go, the rate at which they go up, when we see them, all of those are unknown until they're retrospective in the past. Um, we do know that from previous pandemics that there does tend to be a second wave, but it's not a given in this case. Okay. All right. Next question. What makes the steroid dexamethasone a potentially effective treatment for serious COVID-19 infections? So let's do some mini med school here on steroids. In general, dexamethasone is one of many steroids that we use regularly in this country in medicine. Um, steroids reduce inflammation. That's the good thing. However, they can also potentially increase someone's risk 
for infection. So it's a very fine line and balance here. But as we remember, part of the picture that we're seeing in patients severely ill with COVID-19 is severe inflammation. We've heard it referred to as a cytokine storm, our body's massive immune response. So the thinking is that in low dose, dexamethasone can help to blunt that response. But that is why the research is still ongoing. We still need to learn what dose to give, when to give it, who to give it to, all of that still being looked at. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we appreciate it as always. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, with so many places reopening amid this pandemic, experts still urging everyone to stay in, practice social distancing whenever possible. And with growing concerns over how to safely begin socializing again, a lot of people have turned to quarantine pods or social bubbling as a way to carefully reconnect with friends that we can have quarantines instead of quarantining. So here to tell us more is our very own Becky Worley. So many of us uh, trying to figure this all out, Becky. So how do you first define a quarantine pod or a social bubble? Oh, Amy, you're so right. Coronavirus has spawned ideas, words. It's like we need a new dictionary. So based on my interviews with virus researchers and infectious disease specialists, my definition of a quarantine pod or a social bubble would be a group of five to 12 people, preferably two or three families that socialize together and they don't gather with others. All right. Yeah, that is the key right there. Let's break down all of that. Remind us of the rules for socially distant socializing. Let me bullet point it. It's outdoors, preferably six feet apart, being careful about being in confined places when there's no airflow or breeze and with a mask on if you can. All right. And then this is a big question. How do you safely choose your social bubble? Like who gets in the bubble and who doesn't? Is this complicated or what? (laughs) Um, You want to know what their behaviors are away from the group. So first, sort of the medical. Are they exposed to a lot of people at work? Is mom an ER doctor or dad working at a grocery store? Who else are they bubbling with? See, that's a new verb we didn't have before all of this. Does everyone get along? We're talking parents getting along with parents, kids getting along with kids. And also, you need to kind of think about your risk tolerance or the group dynamics. And you do need to think that out in advance and talk it out in advance. Yeah, yeah. We've all been doing this. I definitely have a bubble. And I think it's important to negotiate those parameters ahead of time. Like, how long will you be socially bubbling? Is that a thing? I don't know. Is that what you say? Uh, and, and, (laughs) And if you leave the bubble, can you come back in the bubble? Oh, man, you feel like a lawyer here, right? We need a prenup. So these are really important questions. You kind of have to stipulate what you're in for. Uh, It's really important for everyone's safety and the health of the friendships. So we're going to lawyer this thing up. Uh, You should have a conversation on the phone or Zoom call to talk out what your social bubble would look and act like. Have those uncomfortable conversations up front or you'll end up regretting it later. Um, You could set up an initial duration of two weeks for your bubble or your quarantine pod and see how it goes. Um, If you decide to leave the group, researchers say you need to probably take two weeks off from socializing. Then you can bubble with someone else. Um, Plus, you could always break up and play the it's not you, it's us card. Uh, You know, maybe 
talk about your nervousness with your exposure or blame the kids. That's one I always do. <laughs> and I think, you know, the one thing, Amy, above all, social bubbling is like fight club. The first rule of social bubbling is you don't talk about social bubbling. And the second rule is you don't post on Instagram about social bubbling. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, <laughs> I'm just really uh, a firm believer in blaming the kids, too. It always works. All right. Becky Ward, with you. <laughs> thank you so much. We appreciate it. Well, much like most of us, our pets aren't looking quite the same during this pandemic. So if you're tempted to try grooming at home, this might actually be the best time to go for it. Some much needed help is on the way. Thanks to Carson Cressley, and he joins us now to tell us all about it. Carson, so happy to have you here with us. The Groom Along coming up this weekend. Tell us how it's going to work. Yeah, it's Saturday night on Animal Planet at 10 p.m. And basically, I mean, we've all been... um, uh, struggling with our own grooming needs um, during the pandemic, and our pets are no different. And uh, I call up some of my celebrity friends like Dennis Quaid and Robert and Kim Herjavec and Apollo Ono, and uh, we actually walk them through grooming their dog at home with an expert on the line, and we do it all on Zoom. And um, we are helping to um, Uh, make their pets look and smell a little um, fresher uh, because it's been a while since people have been able to take their dog for a grooming, just like it's been a while since we've been able to go to the salon. So um, it's, it's really turns out to be very quite fun. Yeah, exactly. Because my dog Brody, his name has turned into you're a smelly boy and that's not good. So we, we need some help here. What's your number one tip for anyone trying to groom their pet at home? I think the number one tip is to be prepared and make sure you have all of your supplies. One big thing is that you should use a shampoo that's made just for dogs or for pets uh, because their hair has a different pH and their skin is more sensitive in certain ways. So you really want to use a product that's made just for them and you can get them uh, online very easily. They're, they're quite available. Uh, And the other thing is just make sure your pet is always safe. You know, don't, let them, if you're washing them in a sink, don't let them walk around on a wet countertop um, for several reasons, but, but mostly to keep them safe uh, from jumping or falling. Those are two big things. And then the toenails, um, the little claws, uh, those can be very sensitive and they actually have a blood vessel that runs in there. So you should really, if you can, leave that to a professional, hopefully when some of the restrictions will will be eased. But those three things, you should be in good shape. No, I, I think that's great advice because, yes, I feel the same way about the toenails. I'm not even going to try that. So it's OK if they're a little long right now. This is, of course, Carson, Pride Month. And this year you are co-hosting a special virtual Pride celebration. I was there in New York City last year. It was amazing. What should we look for this year? New York City Pride is kind of where uh, the Pride movement really kicked off after the Stonewall riots in 1969. So Pride has always been um, a very important event, not just for the LGBTQ plus community, but for everybody in New York City. And that's why ABC7 is televising a virtual parade this year. And it'll have a lot of the great stuff that the the regular parade has. We have an amazing... um, guest of honor and Daniel Levy from Schitt's Creek. We have uh, incredible performers, Janelle Monet, Billy Porter, Deborah Cox. And certainly I'm sure there will be um, a moment where we stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement as well, because Pride has always been a community event about um, standing shoulder to shoulder 
in solidarity. So it should be a very, very special Pride this year. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what we can all do at home to honor Pride Month, even though we can't necessarily be all together to celebrate. What can we as individuals do? Ah, uh, you can be a little more fabulous. Uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I think it's, you know, it's about the spirit of inclusivity, um, about celebrating diversity. Um, and I think if you carry that in your heart, I mean, I always say pride for me is something that isn't just one day, it's throughout the year. And I try to carry that attitude. And I think just being inclusive and open and loving uh, is the most, are the most important components of pride. And I try to kind of embrace that all year long. Amen. Carson Cressley, thank you so much for being with us. We certainly appreciate it. And we want to let everyone know the Great American Groom Along premieres on Animal Planet on Saturday, June 20th. Have a great day. We turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts today. Amy, today I really wanted to talk about how avoiding information, particularly that that can affect our health, can also affect our behavior. I read a really interesting article in Scientific American that caught my attention. It was about a recent study, over 2,000 people in Europe, Germany and Spain, and they basically went through a questionnaire and asked these these people things like, if you knew that you were going to get divorced down the road, would you want to know now? If you knew the date at which you were going to die, would you want to know now? And 90% of people surveyed did not want to know. Would you want to know? No. (laughs) Interesting. I'm among the 90%. So whether it was about personal health or finances or people's perception of you, this type of deliberate choice, they call it either informational ignorance or deliberate ignorance, actually may be at play right now. And this Mm. is a time where their information is changing so quickly. It's evolving. We're learning more every day. It is more important now than ever to stay informed, stay educated, even though our instinct may be, we don't want to know, we actually need to. So you're saying ignorance is not bliss. Okay. From hospitals to transit workers, there are thousands of people on the front lines who deserve our recognition. And today we're highlighting a group of unsung heroes, truck drivers, who are risking their lives delivering essential supplies to ensure those store shelves remain stocked for all of us. And joining us now is one of those heroes, Tamara Brock, who is helping truckers stay safe on the road. Tamara, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for all that you do. Tell us about your cause and how you are helping your fellow truckers right now. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for having me. The organization that I'm with is called The Real Women in Trucking. We're actually a lot of female drivers uh, and also the tier organization. And it's called Truckers Emergency Assistance Responders. And Tamara, talk a little bit about what some of the big challenges are for truckers right now being on the road in these times. A lot of things that happened was when this pandemic first started, we were so busy jumping into uh, trying to take care of the crisis of refilling the stores and making sure hospitals had their supplies and everyone had their uh, protective equipment that we forgot about ourselves when we was delivering all the, these things. And we found that we didn't have the things we needed on the road to stay safe. Uh, out here and protect ourselves. Yeah. So how are you able to distribute that very important PPE equipment to all of those drivers on the road? Well, the Real Women in Trucking got together with some corporations. Um, Some of them is the DDC, uh, FBO, uh, Stuckey's Contribute, and also uh, Transfix and Uber Freight. And what they did was they donated over 10,000 boxes 
for us to give out to the drivers, but they didn't know how they was going to be able to do it. So we band together. They have gloves, masks, snacks, sanitizers, disinfectant. So we band together and uh, we went to the truck stops. We went to the uh, turnpikes, and since we are over-the-road drivers ourselves, we kind of uh, got deliveries of them, went out to the truck stops, went to different places like the rest areas, the scale house, and we also had the other women drivers put a lot of boxes in their trucks, and they was giving them out across country. So we've been in Nevada all the way over to the Florida Turnpike. That is amazing and such a Herculean effort. I know a lot of people out there would like to help as well. How can they do it? Uh, they can do it by going to our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter page. It's the Real Women in Trucking. Also, it's the TIER organization, and it stands for Truckers Emergency Assistance Response. This is just a small thing that we're doing. We have 10,000 uh, boxes that we're giving out, and we also are preparing for the second wave that's getting ready to happen. But we also need everybody else help as well because there's over 3 million drivers out there. So we really need everyone's support to step up and just help the people that are trans transporting all these goods and supplies and medical equipment to make sure they stay safe as well. Yeah, we need you out there healthy and safe. Tamara, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.